Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Josh Gonzalez. Today I'm going to be sharing a testimony. My name is Josh Gonzalez. I'm one of the pastors here at Waitara this year. And I thought it might be fitting as I'm trying to get to know everybody and I'm getting to know the youth and I'm getting to know the adults and the young people. I thought it might be nice for me maybe to share my testimony just to let everybody know a little bit about me um, and where I come from and my journey and what's brought me here to this day. Uh, so I'm going to do that for you guys and uh, just encourage you to pray for me as I do this. Uh, it's a very long story and I'm not going to make it a long story. I want to try to keep it as short as possible. Um, but I just want to pray that what needs to be uh, shared is what is shared. That what is shared uh, can somehow be a blessing to each and every one of you. So with that said, I just want to invite you, if you're here and also online, just to bow your heads with me. Let's have a word of prayer and then um, we'll begin. Father in heaven, Lord, we are so thankful, Lord, for everything that not only you have done, but you continue to do for us each and every day. Lord, we are here because of you. And Lord, Father God, today I have the privilege to share a story that I haven't shared in a while, but I'm very grateful for this opportunity because every time I share my testimony, I have a spiritual revival myself because it reminds me of what you have done for me and what you have brought me out of and how you've changed my life, Lord. But at the same time, Lord God, I pray that as I share, Lord, somebody that is hearing tonight may also be touched, Lord God, that somebody who is hearing tonight may see that just as you have changed my life and as you have saved me and helped me, Lord, you can help others as well. And Lord, Father, we are all struggling with something. There are some of us here maybe that are here tonight or watching online that have been struggling with different things, Lord, and we need to experience that freedom that only you can offer. And so, Father God, I just want to hand myself over to you, and I just pray, Lord, give me the words to touch somebody's heart today, Lord. Let it be so that whoever is listening or present here tonight doesn't leave the program, Lord, the same as they have arrived. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, look, before I get into my actual story, I want to share another story, which is my story, just very, a very, very old version of it. Have you guys heard of a story called the story of the prodigal son? Yeah? Story of the prodigal son found in Luke chapter 15. Three amazing parables that Jesus shares. And these parables are so powerful because if you look at the context of the parables that Jesus shares in the book of Luke 15, each one of these parables is shared as a response to an accusation that was made against him. And the accusation that was made against Jesus was that he was spending time with sinners, that he was eating with them and drinking with them and associating with them and going to their house. And the religious leaders of the day didn't like that. And they accused him and they said, why are you spending time with these people? And as a response, Jesus gives these three amazing parables. And I'm looking forward to over time as we uh, start our series and we go through our series, we're going to get to a couple of those uh, parables, the first two. Um, but today I want to briefly just go through the third parable, which is the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. Now, it, it, it's, a very, it's a very profound story. And it's a story that so many people relate to. 
It's a story that so many people relate to because it's the story of a son who basically turned his back on his father, who was disobedient, who also succumbed to the lusts of the flesh and his desire to go outside of his father's house and go into the world and do what the world was doing. And there's so many of us, whether we grow up in church or we're new to the church, we can relate to this story because we live in a world that is very attractive. Very attractive. You turn on your television, you turn on your, your laptop, you go on your mobile phone, you go on, online, and there's so many things that attract every one of us, no matter what age you are. You know, a lot of the time, the older folk like to say, oh, you know, the young people need to be careful with what's out there. The older folk need to be just as careful, amen? Because it's attractive for each and every one of us. And the devil has a ability to get us no matter how old we are or, you know, what, what it is that we're doing in life or what our experience is. So the story basically goes like this. I'm just going to summarize it for you. You have a son who's at home, and there's actually two sons. But it focuses on a particular son who lives at home with his father. And we get the idea that he has everything that he could want. Father looks out for him. He provides for him. You know, he's got a big bedroom. He's always got food on the table. He's always got clothes on his back. He has everything that he needs. But it's almost like there's a fence around the father's house. And it's almost like this particular son keeps looking over that fence which is kind of like the equivalent maybe for us today when we go on our phones and we go onto YouTube and we see what the young people are doing out in the world. And so it's like this son was looking over the fence and he could see that out in the world there were so many things happening. And as he would see these things, he started to, to be attracted to it. And he got to the point where he said, you know what, I don't want to be here anymore. I want to go out. I want to go and live my life. I want to go and do what I want to do. I want to go and have fun. And so he has this conversation and he says to his dad, he says, dad, basically says, dad, when are you going to die, man? I want my inheritance. I want you to die so that I can get my inheritance so I can go and do what I want and live my life. Because we know, right, that an inheritance doesn't get passed on until the parents pass away. And it's like the father with a broken heart turns around and doesn't want the son to leave. But at the same time, he's not going to force him to stay. And if you don't know by now, the father in the story represents God. And the son that we're talking about could represent us. But what we see is that God, out of his love and out of his kindness and just his character in general, God doesn't force you, right? He doesn't force you to stay. He doesn't force you to be at church. He doesn't force you to follow him and to worship him. In fact, God doesn't want us to follow or worship him out of that. He wants us to do it because we love him. Anyways, the father doesn't force the son and like with a broken heart says, here you go, gives him the inheritance and he goes off on his way. The Bible says he ends up leaving the country and he goes far away because let's be honest, right? Who wants to be doing things that they shouldn't do where family is close? Or, you know, for us, if we're going to make it a little bit more personal, it's like, if we're going to go out and do something wrong, we definitely don't want any of the brothers or sisters from church to kind of catch us in the act. So we want to get as far away as possible. Goes to another country. And the Bible says he starts spending all his money. And he had quite a bit. But he spends it on this thing. And this is where we get the word prodigal from. Because the Bible says that he spent it on prodigal living. Does anybody know what the word prodigal means? 
Anyone? No idea? The word prodigal literally means wasteful. He spent it wasting, wasting his money, wasting his time, wasting his life. And it's not long before he has no money left. And, you know, I started to, when I was looking at that story and I saw that, that part about how, you know, it's not too long before uh, he has no money left. I started to remember, you know, remember a little bit about my experience out in the world. And I remember how it was that, you know, whenever one of the boys has money, everyone loves him. He's popular because he has money. You know, when you go and shout people and you pay for things, people love you. So I can just imagine this guy who's been at home all this time and now he's out in the big wide world. He has all this money and now he has all these friends. And these friends are probably mooching off him. And it's not long before he has nothing left. And so what does he do? The Bible says that he's in a place where a big famine comes. So we all understand what a famine is, right? It's like, uh, how do we relate it to today? Like a big global financial crisis, you know? Nobody has jobs. Uh, people don't have money. Uh, people are struggling. So there's a big famine. And he's not a citizen of this country. Because remember, he left his home country to go to this place. And so he doesn't have rights like everyone else. He probably can't get Centrelink. He, he can't get these things. And so he tries to find anything that he can to survive and get by. And the only thing he can find is work feeding pigs. Now, we understand that this story is told in the context of a Jewish person. And, you know, Jewish people, just like us Sevis, you know, we, we don't like the pig, right? Like, we like the pig in the sense that it's a cute animal, but that's as far as we go with it. We don't cut it up and put it on the barbecue and eat it. It's an unclean animal. And for the Jewish people, the pig is, is dirty. And the fact that it's the only work that he can get means that he's been basically degraded to the lowest possible place he could be. So I'll give you an illustration, right? I've got a, found this picture, and it was interesting because this picture is supposed to represent the prodigal son at his lowest point. Now, I don't know if anybody here has ever been at what they would consider to be their lowest point. I have. I'm going to share that with you in a moment. Maybe there's someone here tonight or maybe there's someone that's listening online that might be going through a kind of experience like this where you feel like, man, it cannot get any worse than what it is. Some of our low points get so low that while we're going through these low points, we end up having some pretty messed up thoughts. I know that's what happened to me. But what this guy is thinking about as he's in his lowest point possible, he's there and he's watching these pigs and he's watching the pigs eat and he's looking at them and he's like, man, these pigs have got it better than me. At least they have a place to live and they have food. You know, they eat garbage, but what? It's their food. They're eating, right? He's like, I'm starving, I'm dying here. And so it's in his lowest point that he starts to think about things in a way which he never thought about them before. He starts to remember his father. And as he's remembering his father, he remembers how good he had it at home. And he's not just thinking about how good he had it. He starts thinking, man, even the hired servants that worked in my father's house, they had it amazing. They had a, their own room. They had a bed to sleep in. They had food on the table. They had clothes on their back. My dad, he looked after even the servants. And then he's remembering, and I was his son. Like, I had it so good. You know what he's thinking in this moment? Four words. 
Four words that some of us might come across at some point in our life. What have I done? Have you ever been in a situation like that? Where things are just not going well for you at all? Things just keep getting worse and worse. And when you realize it, it's everything that's happening to you is really because of the choices you've made, because of the decisions you've made. And this guy is at this point where he's just like, what have I done? How could I have left my father's house? And so what's coming to his mind and his heart at this moment is, I have to go back home. But now he's going to struggle with something else that somebody listening tonight might also be struggling. He's struggling with the thought, but will my dad take me back if I come home? I've gone too far, maybe. I've done too much bad. Maybe if I go to my dad, he's not even going to accept me. So he starts thinking, maybe, maybe I can convince him to take me back as a servant. And he thinks that that's his best shot. The son of the father thinks that his best shot is that his dad will take him back as a servant. So he goes on his journey, hoping that maybe dad will take him back and let him at least be a servant. Because in his mind, as a son as whatever rights that he had as the son, as whatever position that he had as the son, according to him right now, he's killed it. That's dead. No chance of that happening. I can't go back as the son anymore. Maybe as a servant. Goes on his road and as we read, as he's walking home, the Bible says that while he's still a far away off, the Bible says the father sees the son and he goes out and he runs towards him. And he When he reaches him, he hugs him and he's so happy that his son has come home. And and as his father's hugging him with tears in his eyes, the son is trying to trying to to, to maybe say something to to convince, you know, oh, can I come as a servant? The father doesn't even want to hear it. The first thing the father does, he says, man, my son was lost and he's found. And he's like, I need to celebrate. He says, go get my robe, the best robe, and put it on him. Go kill the fattest calf and let's eat and celebrate. And he starts saying, because my son was lost and he's now found. And what I imagine is happening to the son at this moment is that realization that God has responded to what's happened with him in a way in which he didn't think would happen. This story is so important for us. Because we never know when we might go through a situation like this. We never know when we might go through a situation where we wander away from God. You know, it's 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 crazy, but none of us are safe in a sense. We can always be deceived by the devil if we allow ourselves to be in, a, in, in the right circumstances for that to happen. You know, I have friends of mine that I used to do ministry with that were powerful preachers that right now they're not walking with the Lord. And it makes me think, man, anyone, right? I had my experience uh, from a different point of view where I did grow up in church and then I wandered off. But I've seen people that were just so on fire and, and just into ministry and, and literally winning souls for Jesus that are now no longer walking with the Lord. And the interesting thing is, is that for someone like that, that's friends of mine, I'm sharing this same story with them. So this story is a story that can touch us no matter who we are, no matter what we've gone through. But I think the most important thing to remember with this story 
is the way the dad responded to his son coming home. All right. Let me, uh, let me share a little bit about really why I'm even here today. I, like many of you probably here, grew up in church. I didn't grow up in this church. I grew up in a different church. I, I was raised Baptist. And my Christian experience pretty much all my life was, was very lukewarm, um, to say the least. But since I was a child, my dad always made a point, always made a point to teach me the Bible. He always made a point to get me to pray, always made a point to open up the Bible with me and read it with me. And, you know, we used to go to Sunday school. I grew up going to Sunday school and doing all of that. But like, look, like many young people today, my church experience was really based on two things. It was based on one, my parents making me go to church. And it was based on when I got to church, my friends were there. It wasn't really based on the fact that I had this amazing personal relationship with Jesus that made me want to go to church. So I grew up in church and, you know, was doing the Christian thing and all that. But I lived and I grew up in a, in a bit of a rough neighborhood called Hillsdale. Um, some of you may not know where that is. It's down in the southeast of Sydney uh, on the way to La Perouse, sort of, if anybody knows where that is. But I grew up in a, in a neighborhood called Hillsdale. And when I was a young boy, probably about 10, 11 years old, there were a lot of older boys uh, that hung out in the area that we, uh, that we lived in. And there were two gangs that lived in that area. And so these guys, you know, dressed a certain way, spoke a certain way, acted a certain way. And I always looked up to them because as a little kid, I would look at these guys and man, they were just the coolest guys I had ever seen. I loved the way that they dressed. I loved the fact that they always had pretty girls around them. I loved the fact that, you know, they listened to this cool music. All this kind of stuff was just like, as a little kid, I was swept up by it. And so I don't even know how it happened, but at some point I started hanging out with these guys and they took me in. Now, they weren't the best role models because at the end of the day, I started drinking and I started smoking and doing these things with these guys, which now that I look back, I'm like, man, these guys were like 18, 17, 18, 19. I was probably like 11 years old. That's not really cool to give a little kid, you know, his first cigarette and things like that. But nonetheless, I like these guys that were people that I looked up to. And so before I knew it, I started imitating. That's what we do, right? We imitate. And so I started dressing differently and walking differently and talking differently. And now I started listening to gangster rap and I just became a completely different person. And so what ended up happening from that too is that then I started basically, uh, how do you say it? When two groups are attracted, how do you call that? I started like, ah, oh, there's a word, man, but I can't remember it. You know when you like, uh, gravitating, that's the word. I started gravitating to like-minded people. And so when I'd go to school, you know, when I was in year six, we formed a gang in year six. And it was like really, really silly stuff. Like we weren't gangsters or hardcore or anything like that. We were just little kids who thought we were, or like to think we were. And we listened to rap music and we'd go around, you know, doing graffiti and things like that. Just silly kid stuff. But that rap kind of gangster culture always stayed with me and, and, and I always tried to be like that. And then, you know, initially it was all the African-American stuff that I really loved. But as I got into high school, I started 
realizing the fact that, especially in the US, the Hispanic people, which is my background, I'm, I'm Latino, the Latinos are just as gangster as the African Americans. And so I started now coming across all of that stuff and just getting swept up by it. And then high school, you know, forming another crew with some of the other boys and yeah. And then I, start, I stopped going to church around that time. I remember when I had the conversation with my dad and I just, I said to my dad one day, I said, dad, I don't want to go to church anymore. I just, I just didn't want to go. And I think the main reason why I didn't want to go is not because I didn't like church, but by that time I was drinking, smoking, I, was, I started taking some drugs. I was just doing stupid things. Like when you're living a lifestyle like that, it's difficult to go to church because you feel guilty. So I was just like, dad, I don't want to go anymore. And, and I, looking back, I could almost picture my dad's heart kind of breaking when I said that to him. But I was like getting older, I think it was like 15, 16, and my dad's like, look, I'm not going to force you to go to church anymore. And these are the parallels that I kind of see, you know, with the story of the prodigal son. You know, it's like my dad is always like, I'm not going to force you. And so I stopped going to church and started doing things. And then when I was 19 years old, I met a girl who is now my uh, wife today, Tanya. Most of you have met Tanya, some of you have. And... Um, there was one thing my dad always told me, though, that always stuck with me. He just said to me, he says, one, he's, he always taught me how to treat women with respect. That was one thing my dad, I've got to commend my dad for that. He's a great role model in that aspect. But he also just mentioned to me, and I don't know why he said it to me, but as I, was, I was getting older. He just said to me, he goes, if you're going to get together with a girl now that you're getting older and you want to get serious, he just said, just make sure she's a Christian. Because it's just going to save you a lot of drama if you guys end up, you know, getting married and this and that. Just, just make sure if you're going to go serious with a girl, just make sure she's a Christian. So I'm like, all right, dad. At the end of the day, I'm just lucky that the beautiful girl I met happened to be a Christian. Because if she wasn't a Christian, I probably would have still gone out with her anyways. But we had the talk when we started dating. And I asked her. And I said, hey, by the way, you Christian? She goes, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go, oh, cool. Like, what church do you go to? She goes, oh, I'm Seventh-day Adventist. Like, you what? I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. I'm like, what's that? She's like, oh, we're just a Christian church. I'd never heard of Adventist before. This is the weirdest sounding name to me. Seventh-day Adventist. Like, what does that even mean? Right? And I was like, all right, cool. But you're a Christian, yeah? And she's like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm like, cool. That's all I need to know. I don't need to know anything else. You're a Christian. Cool. Like, tick the box. We start dating, and around that time, I'm working at an Italian restaurant, and I started falling in love with Italian food. Still love it to this day. Um, but I was learning how to cook a specific dish, and one day, I got all, you know, romantic, and I invited her over to my house, and I said, I'm going to cook for you. My favorite dish that I learned, the chefs at the restaurant, they taught me. And so I was all excited. I'm like, I'm going to make this for her, you know? And so I invite her over to my house, you know, whole candlelight dinner thing happening, and I remember I cooked up uh, a, a big, big feed, and I, I, put, I remember I served it on her plate, and I remember bringing it to her, and I remember her just staring at that plate. Like, like I, th I got scared. I thought maybe there was like a hair on it or something, right? She's looking at it, and she's not touching it. And I'm like, what's wrong? She's like, is that, is that bacon? I'm like, yeah, bacon, fettuccine carbonara, you know? That's what I cooked up. She goes, I don't eat bacon. I said, what? She goes, yeah, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't eat pig. I go, what do you mean you don't eat pig? Who doesn't eat pig, man? It's the most delicious thing in the world. I'm like, what do you mean? 
She's like, yeah, I don't. I go, oh, man. And I felt bad. I said, oh, what do I do? Just want me to take it out? And she was like, no, it's fine. It's fine. She ends up taking it out, and then she ate it. You know, she would have broken my heart if she didn't do that. But she took all the bacon out. She didn't eat the bacon. And then I just got curious. I'm going, why don't you eat bacon? She goes, oh, because, you know, my, my, my beliefs and stuff. I go, but you said you're a Christian. Christians eat bacon. We all eat bacon. She's like, no, nah, but we don't. And then I started realizing she was going to church on the wrong day. I was like, why do you go to church on Saturday for? She goes, oh, because we go to church on Saturday. So I, I, at this point, I'm getting a little bit kind of frustrated and confused. So I go to my pastor at the Baptist church. I wasn't really going to church, but pastor was, was, was around. And I said, hey, hey, pastor, listen, I'm going out with this girl. I really like her and everything. Um, I think, we, you know, we're getting a bit serious. But she's told me she's a Seventh-day Adventist. The moment I mentioned those words, it's like my pastor had seen a ghost, you know? He's like, oh. and I'm like, what's wrong? What happened? He starts telling me all these things about Adventists to the point where I was just like, wow. I called her up straight away. I go, baby, you need to leave that church. You're like in the wrong church. She's like, what do you mean I'm in the wrong church? I go, man, started just reiterating stuff that my pastor had told me. And then I just start going on this mission to try to get her to leave the Adventist church. And it was crazy. Like, I wasn't even going to church myself, but I was convinced that my church was the right church. Her church was the wrong one. So then she starts inviting me to her church, and she was going to one of the Spanish churches back then out west in Blacktown. Blacktown Spanish, um, to be exact. And I went there, and I wanted to go suss it out. I wanted to go see what these people are like, because I had gone online, you know. First thing I read is, these guys are a cult. I'm like, man, my girlfriend's in a cult. I've got to get her out of this thing. Right? So I'm curious. Can I go to your church and, 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 and visit? She's like, yeah, yeah, come. So I go to the church, and, and to my surprise, everyone looks pretty normal. Uh, and, but not only that, there's a lot of young people at this church that are just like me. Young Hispanic males into rap music, um, into other stuff too. And, uh, and we just started gravitating. That's what happens. So all of a sudden, I've got like this whole new crew out west with my boys now, Sevis, good Sevi boys, and, uh, and we start hanging out, and around this time, we wanted to start getting into rap music, because a lot of kids were getting into it back then as well, and this is going back at least, what, 15 years or so ago, at least, probably more. Anyways, we end up forming a rap crew, me and the Sevi boys, and we form a nice rap crew, and we're pretty good, and we start getting gigs, and we start going out to clubs, and we start performing, and we start getting a big following in the Hispanic scene in Sydney in particular. And I have a, a just a, look, I'm going to share a couple of photos with you guys. Um, I've been very kind of uh, careful with the photos I do share with you, um, but I'll, I'll share a couple of photos with you because it was around this time that I started getting into the rap music and started... The thing was, there was probably about five or six of us Hispanic guys, right? And so we would go out to a club, and we would perform, and friends would come, and then all of a sudden, our group just started to grow and to grow and to grow. And the type of places we were hanging out in and the things we were into and the music we were doing, we were attracting uh, what, look, what you would probably call like a criminal type element, right? We had friends that were dealers and in and, and gangs and doing all this kind of stuff, and so we would all get together and we'd go out to clubs and sometimes we'd turn up to a club like 40 of us 
um, bald heads, tattoos everywhere, looking like we just came straight out of a Mexican-American movie from the States. And, but the thing was, is for us, the reaction we would get from people, we really loved it and we thrived on it, right? And so we just start getting little by little pulled into this other kind of world. It started off with hanging out, having fun, doing drugs, to rapping, hanging out, having fun, to now all of a sudden we're getting involved in things. And so back then I was doing a lot of music, I was doing a lot of shows, um, I would perform at many clubs and things like that. And so, yeah, that's just a photo I'm, I'm sharing with you guys about that. Just to let you know, I actually was a rapper. You know, a lot of people like to say that they were rappers and stuff. I was an actual rapper. Legit, that's what you young people are saying these days, right? I was legit. But um, it's crazy because what happened was is that as we started growing in our, what you would call our entourage would grow and grow and grow, other people started getting involved in our group and our group started to grow. And, and during this time in Sydney, there was a lot of stuff happening. Um, we had a few Latin spots in the city that were being uh, harassed by an Islander group and another one by a Middle Eastern group. And so we ended up kind of had this brilliant idea that at some point we ended up with the idea that, yeah, we should just, we should, we should form a gang. But what happened was, is that in our group, there were some, some boys that came from Central America that had gotten involved in some more serious stuff back there, and they wanted to start that stuff here. And the rest of us, we were just kind of like, it's a gang. We didn't know so much about the seriousness of, of, of what these groups uh, are involved in, especially back in like the US and Central America and things like that. But before we know it, we ended up forming the gang. And that's a couple of photos I'll share real quick with you. Of That's who I used to be, look, that's me. That's who I used to be. Very proud of you know, living that life, very proud of being involved in that, very proud of having my boys. Um, and the thing was is that in those days, you know, we were all very tight. Like, we got involved in some things, but we always had each other's back. And I considered every single one of these guys basically to be my brothers. And we started getting more and more deep into certain things uh, and getting involved in things. And so, look, before we know it, we're like really doing this stuff, you know, and we're really getting involved in things and we're really going out there and, and getting into problems with people and things like that. And, you know, the whole thing is like, I grew up in church. And so all the time that my life is kind of going into this direction, the whole time, there's this little voice in the back of my head saying, you're doing the wrong thing. You're doing the wrong thing. You shouldn't be involved in this. You shouldn't be involved in this. And I will just try to fight that voice off. Around 2001, one of my best friends, uh, who happened to be a Lebanese uh, Shia Muslim, I was spending a lot of time with him, good friend of mine till this day. Uh, we were hanging out a lot, um, doing things we shouldn't have been doing. But around that time, you know, September 11th happened, right? And so when September 11th happened, well, I just realized that's more than 20 years ago now. Almost, it's 20 years ago. I said 15, going back 20 years now. Anyways, um, when September 11th happened, I remember talking to my friend about it because, you know, the, the news was all about, you know, the Arabs this and the Arabs that. And so my friend being a, a Muslim, being Lebanese, I went to talk to him and, and he said something that kind of 
it, it, it confused me at first, but then started to kind of blow my mind in a way. He started talking to me about how, you know, it wasn't America, that, uh, it wasn't the Arabs that did it, it was America, they, it was like an inside job. And, and he, he gives me this CD, he's like, listen to this thing. And so I was like, all right, I took it home, I put it on, and man, just this whole history of like secret societies and Freemasons and the Illuminati and all this stuff. And I just started to go crazy with that stuff. And I just became like a full-blown conspiracy theorist. I would carry, literally carry a $1 bill in my pocket, the American $1 bill, so I could show you the pyramid and, and show you the date on the pyramid and the, the words novos ordo seclorum that's in Latin and, and what that means. And like, I was just going crazy with this stuff and researching and reading. And, and you know, people started to think, some people started thinking I was going to be crazy, but I became known in my group of friends, in my family, any circle I was in, I became known as the guy that's into this stuff. Like people will say, man, go, go talk to Josh. Like he, he knows about this crazy stuff that's going on in the world. That's the guy that I was. And while all of this is happening, I get a phone call from a friend of mine one day who's in the gang, one of my good friends to this day. He calls me and he's like, Josh, I've just found this pamphlet. It was like on the floor, on the, on the, on the, on the sidewalk in the front of his house. He'd found some kind of pamphlet, some talks in the city. And he's like, there's these talks and it's like, it looks like it's that stuff that you know about. He's like, come with me. I want, I want you to come with me to go and listen to this stuff, right? And I was like, by that time, I've got to be honest, I was, I was really in a bad place. All this stuff that I was learning and reading was really messing me up. Uh, I was questioning, you know, the Bible. I was questioning a lot of stuff. And it was around that time he calls me up. He's like, you've got to come with me, Josh. You've got to come with me. And I'm like, look, man, I don't want to go. I don't want to know anything about that. And I just, I remember hanging up on him. I was like, nah. He calls me up like later on that day. He's like, come on, bro. Like, we've got to register for this thing. Come with me. I'm like, no, man, I don't want to go. Bro. Just like, leave me alone. I'm done with this stuff. I don't want to know anymore. He calls me the next day. He's like, come on, man. I don't want to go by myself. And I was like, all right, man, look, just to get you off my back, I'll go one time. But that's it. Like, don't expect me to sit there and go through all of these. Because I could see there was like all these talks. He was telling me there was like all these talks. And so I go, look, I'll go one time. Anyways. I remember I turned up that day, and it was at UTS in the city. Um, and I had no idea that this had anything to do with church whatsoever, right? The whole time, and I was a few years like, into all this conspiracy stuff, I could see that there were things happening in the world. Like I think you're kind of blind not to realize that there's something going on, but I could never... Uh, relate anything back to the Bible. I could never relate it back to, you know, what the Bible teaches and stuff. And so I remember I I turned up one day to this program and there's all these like uh, banners and stuff in the background and there's someone who's presenting and, you know, he had his suit and his tie on and stuff and and, and he he says something that really spun me out. He goes, I'm going to be talking about this, this and this today, but before I do that, I just want to let everybody know I'm a Christian and I just want to pray. And he starts praying. And I look to my left and to my right, and everyone's like that. And I'm just like, I'm just like sitting there like confused. I'm like, why is this guy praying? A Christian talking about these things? He ends up like doing this presentation. It was called the Ancient Mystery Religions. It was just uh, talking about paganism and how secret societies and stuff today kind of use this kind of religion, but how it traces all the way back to ancient Babylon. Anyways, blew my mind. After the presentation, I'm like, man, I've got to talk to this guy. I've been like looking for someone like this guy to kind of, like I was in a bad place. I needed some kind of uh, guidance, you know, some kind of help. And so I'm like, I've got to go talk to this guy. And I remember, I go, hey, man, 
Are you a Christian, yeah? He's like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go, what church are you from? He's like, oh, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. I was like, are you serious, man? This guy's in the cult, bro. Like, oh, come on, man. He, he could see how disappointed I was, and he's like, hey, like, you know, what, what's wrong? And I'm just like, oh, yeah, look, man, I know about you guys, and you're not eating pork, and you're going to church on the wrong day. My girlfriend's a Seventh-day Adventist, but I, um, I was like, you know, really hesitant, you know? And he's like, look, I'm going to finish up in a couple of weeks. I'll come to your house and do some Bible studies. I was like, nah, that's cool, man. Oh, good, thank you. But we kept talking for like another hour. And I'm telling you, everything this guy was saying was just like, I was like sitting, like standing in front of someone that I could just feel was just so knowledgeable. When he asked me again at the end of our conversation to do Bible studies, I was like, all right, all right, let's do it. Let's go. Come, come to my house. But I let him come in my mind with the thought that I was going to convince him that Adventism was wrong and that he was in the wrong church. And he's a well-known speaker today. Some of you may know him. His name is Pastor Lyle Southwell. Um, he will say to you that he's probably never met anyone that's given him a bigger headache than me because every time he came to my house, I would have piles and piles of things to argue with against the Adventists, you know? And he'd come just week after week after week and Man, he was just smashing through all of these arguments, just using the Bible. And he got to the point, I just, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't attack their beliefs anymore, but I, I had one up my sleeve. They have a false prophet, and I can prove it. So I'm like, I'm going to get everything I can find online about Ellen White, and I start getting all this stuff, and then boom, just one by one starts going through all of these arguments I had found and realized that everything that I was bringing forth was either an actual lie, something that she had never actually said, or it was just taken out of context. And it got to the point where I was just like, I couldn't fight it anymore. And I remember having this conviction one day where I realized, man, I'm not fighting the church anymore. I'm fighting the Bible now. And that really hit me hard because I realized that everything that I was trying to fight against, the Bible was telling me I was wrong. Not some person, not a church or some you know, fundamental beliefs of some organization, but it was the Bible. And so, man, I, I went through a really crazy period in my life then where I started getting all of these convictions. And throughout all of these studies, I started to actually understand the Bible now. I started to understand God more. It's like God was calling out to me through these studies. And I remember Lyle preached at Penrith Church one day, and he invited me to go out there. And I remember going out to this church, and there was all these people there. It was like an afternoon program, like a youth thing. And it was packed. The church was packed. And I don't even know what he was preaching, but for me, it was like super embarrassing. But I remember sitting there in church, and something he had said had just struck and pierced my heart so deeply I'm just like sitting in church halfway through his sermon and I'm just crying like a little baby. And, and they had to take me out to like a, a room, like the pastor's room and close the door because I, I was just like sobbing. And I was so angry too because I'm like, I'm crying in front of people. Like I'm a gangster, you know what I mean? Like how am I sitting here in a church crying in front of people? Oh, I was just like this thing that was happening right in my heart. But the Lord was really trying to reach me and it got to the point where I realized, man, I can't. I can't do this anymore. I can't live like this anymore. I, I can't be doing the drugs and selling the drugs and hanging out and going out and doing things like, I can't. I was so convicted in my heart that one day the conviction was just too strong that I said, I have to go, I have to go and say something. So I went to a friend's house who was a good friend of mine. Um, so I thought, you know, my brother, 
and basically explained the situation and just was honest. Like, I'm out. You know, I can't do this anymore. I'm a Christian. I, I want to, you know, follow God. And he didn't say much, but I remember getting home and just remember as soon as I got home, just remember my phone just like crazy, just calling. The boys were just calling me and like, what's going on, man? What's happening? What do you mean you're leaving? What's, what's this about you leaving? Like, you can't leave and this and that and like, all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, it's like, man, you, you, are you scared? Is that what it is? You're coward? Man, you're fake, bro. You're coward. You're this, you're that. And I'm just like, like, what is going on, man? Like, these are my friends. All I'm trying to do is do something better with my life. And like, all of a sudden, my best friends just like turning on me. And like, my wife can tell you, like, this was one of the, the, the worst parts of my life. I was like, I, I think I got like a little bit depressed over this because these were guys that I would literally have taken a bullet for on the streets. Like, if it got down to that, I would have done that. They were my brothers, and now all of a sudden they're turning on me, and, and no matter what was happening, though, the conviction was strong. I was like, I, I need to follow through with this. And so I just, I tried to brush all that stuff off as best as I could, and I just kept on with my plan, and I'm like, I want to do this. And so I, my life has to change, though. I can't do drugs anymore. I can't sell drugs anymore. I can't go out and, you know, act like a fool the way I've been doing and all this stuff. I can't do that anymore. So I want to change all of that. But there was one thing I wasn't willing to give up. The one thing I wasn't willing to give up was music. I said, this was the gift that God gave me. I'm a rapper. This is my chance to make it in this world. Because like, I wasn't very studious. Like, I formed a gang in year six. What kind of a high school experience do you think I had? When I finished year 12, I wasn't you know, in line to go to uni, put it that way. This was it for me, right? And I spent so many years on the streets and stuff, so I was like, this is my future. Anyways, I, start, I kept doing music, and I'm, I had some friends. And what happened, though, and this is what made some of my old boys even matter, was that I was the first out of the whole group to stand up and say, I'm done with this. I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. I don't want to be this person anymore. And the moment I did that, other people then got the courage to step up and do the same thing. So a bunch of people were starting to leave, and so the ones that are left are seeing me as like, I'm the culprit. I'm the reason, right? It's my fault. And so, you know, they're threatening me this and that. And I'm like, all right, whatever. I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to follow the Lord. I'm doing better. My life is slowly changing, right? I'm still doing music, but I'm doing positive music now. I'm not doing the gangster rap stuff anymore and swearing and stuff. I'm doing positive music, you know, things that people can dance to and and so I'm, I'm convincing myself that this is all, all good. But I'm realizing that every time I go to the studio to record, I'm always hit with drugs. I'm always hit with alcohol. Every time I go to the clubs, the same thing. And it wasn't just that. I would perform. And there would be times where after I would perform, I would have random girls that would come up to me to try to do stuff. And like, I'm in a serious relationship. So it was just like temptation after temptation after temptation. Finally, I got to a point where I was like, I just took a break from everything. Because it just it wasn't working. And now I'm going to church like never before. Every Sabbath, I'm in church. I'm getting involved in stuff at church. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing things like I'm trying to, you know, spiritually get better and stronger. And, and everything's looking good. And then one day I get a phone call from my mom. And she's crying on the phone. To be continued.
This message was made available by the Watara Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit waitarachurch.org.au. The preacher's daughters will now sing till the storm passes by.
Welcome to God's Favourite Shepherds, a collection of 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters, with many of the stories ending with a short quiz. Listen now to the author of God's Favourite Shepherds, Bill Ackland. Today's story I would like to share with you is from the New Testament and is entitled, Martha is My Name. Will I always be the same? There is a better choice. And this story is based on Luke's chapters 10, 11 and 12. He has returned to his Father in heaven, but I cannot forget him, for not only is he the Messiah, the Saviour, but he was also our dear friend as well. When our parents passed away, our brother Lazarus, Mary and I, stayed on in the family home in Bethany, less than an hour's easy walk from Jerusalem, on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. Lazarus has not married. He thought that as our elder brother, he should care for his sisters, at least until we were married. That hasn't happened yet. Lazarus and I, and sometimes Mary, studied the sacred writings of Moses and the prophets. There we learned of the Messiah who was to come. We knew that from the prophecies it would not be long before he appeared. How would we know who he was? Would there be some miraculous announcement from heaven? And then one day we heard of a man who was preaching about the kingdom of heaven and performing wonderful miracles. His first miracle, as far as we know, was at a wedding he and his mother and his stepbrothers attended in Cana a small town in the region of Galilee. When all the wine was finished, he turned plain water into the best wine they had ever tasted. When he came to our town, I felt the urge to invite him to stay at our house to have a rest from his busy life. He was teaching and healing all through the day and seemed to have little time to be quiet and rest for a while. So as often as he could, He treated our place as a home away from home, for we had heard him say once that even the foxes have a place in the ground, but he did not have anywhere to call his own to retreat to at the end of the day. Soon after this, Jesus visited our village just before the evening meal. I am known for my gift of hospitality, so as quickly as I could, I started preparing the food, setting the table, and doing all the things that hostess does for an honoured guest. Suddenly, I realised that Mary was not helping me. When I went to look for her, I found her sitting on the floor before Jesus, listening to what he was saying. I remonstrated with Jesus and asked him to tell Mary to help me. I was a little taken aback when he said that I was very busy rushing here and there, doing things that could have been done later. But Mary had made a better choice. She was listening to his words of life. That was a rather hard lesson for me at the time. Since then, and especially since Jesus is no longer with us, I have endeavoured to put the things of his kingdom first and let the mundane things of life take their proper place. Early in the Messiah's work with the people, Lazarus and I were very worried about our youngest sister, Mary. She was a beautiful girl with a very friendly and accommodating nature. She liked to please people and make them happy. Sadly, 
This worked to her detriment, for she seemed to make friends very easily, especially with men, who sought her out for her beauty and her body. Lazarus and I had remonstrated with her, but she seemed to be trapped in that life. And then one day, one faithful day, she was about to be stoned for what she had done. Jesus the Messiah was nearby, so the scribes and Pharisees dragged her before him. They tried to trap him by saying that Moses said she should be stoned. But what did he say? He seemed to ignore the religious leaders. Stooping down, he started writing in the sand. When the men who had hoped to stone our sister saw that he was writing down some of their own sins, they all slunk away one by one, realising that they too were not without fault. Jesus then told Mary that he forgave her and encouraged her to embark on a new life with God. Since that day, when she was forgiven and cleansed, Mary's devotion to her Saviour has been absolute. One day, she took all her savings to the apothecary and obtained the most expensive, exquisitely scented perfume. Knowing where Jesus was at Simon the Pharisee's house, she went there to show how grateful she was that Jesus had rescued her from a sinful life and to show how much she loved him. As quietly as she could, she took the lid off her jar, poured the perfume on Jesus' feet and wiped them with her beautiful long hair. Immediately everyone in the house knew what was happening. Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples, protested that what Mary had done was a terrible waste of money. In reply, Jesus said that Mary had anointed his body before his burial, and that down through the years what Mary had done would be told wherever the gospel was preached. One day before this, without warning, Lazarus became ill. We tried all the home remedies we could think of and sent an urgent message to Jesus. We knew that he would know what to do, for he had healed many people already in his ministry. All we said was, the one whom you love is sick. We left the rest up to him, thinking he would come immediately to heal his friend. The brother we depended on so much. But that day passed and then the next. Jesus did not come. Meanwhile, Lazarus died. He had been anointed according to the custom, wrapped in grave clothes and laid to rest in his tomb. Finally, Jesus arrived at Bethany. By then, Lazarus had been in the grave for four days. Our hope and faith were still in Jesus, for when I met him a little way from our home, I told him that if he had been here, he would not have let our brother die. I also said that whatever he asked the Father, that he would give it to him. Soon after, Mary approached Jesus and said much the same as I had. Then a very beautiful and sad thing happened. Jesus wept. Of course, we knew that Jesus loved our brother. We were hoping that he would still raise him back to life, even at this late stage, which he did to our great joy. Since then, I have often wondered if there was another reason he wept that day, perhaps for the people who did not believe in him. Since all these events during Jesus' ministry, 
and his crucifixion one dreadful day, then his glorious resurrection and return to heaven. I have thought a lot about what sort of a person I was before he gave me that lesson in our home. I have tried with the Holy Spirit's help to change the way I look at life. How should I relate to the things that happen day by day compared to the things of the kingdom of heaven? I believe I have changed. If Mary turned away from the life she had led and made Jesus first and lasted and best in everything, surely I can change too. I do not need to always be the same. Now I have a little quiz for you. What was the name of the town where Martha lived? Who were the other members of her family? Who wrote the sacred writings they studied? Who did the most housework in the home? Was Mary ugly? Did her beauty get her into trouble? Did Jesus ever cry? And why did he cry? You've been listening to God's Favoured Shepherds, a book with 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters. If you have any comments or questions, or to obtain a copy of this book, give us a call within Australia on 02-4973-3456 or send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. We'd love to hear from you. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.